0: This morning, we're in Matthew chapter 8, if you could turn there, and it'll be on the screen. This is a hard passage today, so one of the harder teachings of Jesus, and I keep saying this, but as we go through the Gospels, from this point forward, for the rest of this year, you're going to see a change in the content of the Gospels, because Jesus is now heading toward the cross, which he always was, but now he's telling people that that's the case, and so there's this change in the content of the gospels but what that creates is a change in the emotion of the gospels from this point forward. If the beginning of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John were all, you know, power encounters and healing and fireworks and things to celebrate, that stuff still happens all the way up to the cross, but there's a noticeable change in emotion. Sorrow, hardship become emotions that become very prevalent in the book, um, in these books from this point forward. So you're going to feel that for the next year. But this is some of the most profound stuff that happens in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, all of the miracles and healings are in many ways prologue to the cross. Now, it's important. It's the kingdom breaking in. But the reason Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write these books is because... Ultimately, what they want to record for us is the story of the cross. All of these authors dedicate, you know, a good portion of the book, sometimes up to half of the book, to talking about the cross. So that lets us know something of their emphasis. So at the beginning of this series, two years ago, we've been in the Gospels now for two years already, and we have a third left. Um, At the beginning of the series, we were saying, we were using this language saying that, The life of discipleship is a life of invitation and challenge. It's invitation because Jesus opens his arms to us, because he loves us, because he welcomes us, and we we never have to doubt that he loves us, church. Isn't that wonderful? He just loves us. That's our Jesus. That's who we worship and sing to. The invitation is wide open. But he loves us enough to challenge us, um, to call us out, to nudge us in a direction. Um, if you are a parent or a grandparent or you've invested in the life of any child or youth, you know that part of what we do in the lives of kids is immediately start to nudge them along. You know, my daughter has only been home for a few days, and really, there's only one thing that we care that she does, and it's eat right now, right? And it's our role as parents to make sure, like, we'll get to the other stuff later. Even sleeping, we'll get to it later, but right now... We just want her to eat. And Chelsea all day yesterday, in the way that only a mother can, spent the whole day in the room with Isla getting her to eat, and she did, you know, yesterday. And I I can't I can't relate to that. I can't feed Isla. Like, you know, anyway. So so Chelsea, Chelsea is able to, to do this. And, and listen, Isla at first, every baby's different. But I will, you know, yesterday is crying and screaming and didn't like it. But if you saw the way my wife was dealing with her, it was so gentle and all loving, but it was directional too. We're going somewhere, right? We're going to, and we start doing that with our kids right away, right? It's invitation and challenge. We love you. You know, I'm going to be gentle with you. No one's a bigger, you know, support to you than me as your parent But immediately we start nudging them in a direction, and if our heart is right, it's for their benefit, not ours, right? Well, that's what Jesus does with us. This is what the Father does with us as his children. It's invitation and challenge, and right away, he begins to nudge us. So today is uh, one of those passages. It's short, but it'll be on the screen behind me. You can stay seated while I read this. Um, Matthew 8, and we will begin in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of, of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' Jesus replied, "'Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head.' Another disciple said to him, "'Lord, first let me go and bury my father.' But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Well, when God is in the room, anything can happen. Amen? And when you forget your sermon notes, anything can happen. And that's this morning. (laughs) All right? So we'll just see what happens. I did. I left my sermon notes somewhere in some mystery location. Okay, so. My, one, my main idea this morning for us is that Jesus in the life of discipleship calls us beyond expected comforts and expected customs to an unexpected cross. He calls us beyond expected comforts, expected customs, to an unexpected cross. So first of all, that he calls us beyond expected comforts. So this teacher of the law comes to Jesus, so he's some kind of religious leader, an expert in the law, and he comes to Jesus and he is expressing a desire to follow Jesus. Now, that would have been at some cost to him because Jesus' popularity at this point is not going up. It's starting to go down, right? And this person has political and religious reasons probably not to identify with Jesus. And so when he approached Jesus and said, yep, sign me up, I'm willing to go with you, he probably felt like he was sacrificing something to do it. Now, Jesus receives that, but then he calls the man even further beyond his comfort zone by saying this thing about foxes having dens, birds having nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. By this point, Jesus is traveling between towns. You know, He has a home base, but for the most part, they're traveling. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is, look, right now, I'm homeless. And so what he says to the man is, I'm glad, you know, that you're willing to identify with me and sacrifice some, maybe socially. But are you willing to sacrifice materially too? Jesus is just saying, look, if you want to be with me, you need to know this, that right now I don't have a home. Right now I'm homeless. So if what you're saying is you want to follow me, then it means you're going to follow me in my homelessness. It means you're not going to have a place to stay maybe every night. It means you're going to be at the mercy of strangers for your food and your shelter. That's just how Jesus was living at this point in his ministry. And he wasn't doing it just to make a statement. He was doing it purposefully because his ministry was headed toward the cross. All of this had purpose in it. So he's just saying, you can be with me, but this is what it's going to be like. So he's calling this man beyond the normal expectations for comfort, right? It's a normal expectation that we have shelter and food and all those things. Those are expectations for comfort that we have. But Jesus is calling him beyond that, saying, if you want to be with me, this is what it's going to be like for this season. Because this is where I'm going. You know, you're going to experience homelessness. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not anti-comfort. He's just pro-love. See, he's not anti-comfort. God God blesses us with things. He blesses us with comforts. In the Old Testament, especially, material blessing in particular is a sign of the blessing of God. And the Old Testament prophets and writers celebrate that. They're not afraid to talk about that, that this is one way God evidences His blessing on the lives of His people is by making them prosperous. It's not a problem with that. But speaking of the Old Testament, where the prophets take issue with economic prosperity or comfort is when it is achieved at the expense of other people, which is far easier than we realize to do, or when it's achieved at the expense of devotion to God. See, God's not anti-comfort. It's just Jesus is pro-love, love of the Father and love of other people, and he's not about to let material comfort stand between him and the cross, right? He's willing to sacrifice that, even willing to be homeless. Now, it's good for us as American Christians, and I realize that probably in this room, there are varying levels of wealth, varying levels of prosperity. You, know, you may have grown up with more or less. I understand that. Nonetheless, we still live, all of us, in one of the most prosperous economies in the world currently, but also that has ever been seen in the history of, of the world. You know, my high school English teacher used to tell us, you guys, he'd point to us teenagers, and he would say, you guys live at a level of comfort and prosperity that ancient kings did not experience, and he wasn't exaggerating, right? That's the level that we live in of comfort. Now, it's not like that that's inherently bad, it's just that comfort has a insulating quality, right? That's why we reach for these comforts. It's to stand between us and pain, right? The reason we reach for the thermostat to get that perfect temperature in our house is because that thing is a buffer between us and our pain, right, being too cold or too hot. That's why we reach for it. Now, the thermostat's not bad in and of itself, but here's the problem. It's that love often requires pain, see? Love often requires suffering. For Jesus love required the cross. You see, anything short of that wouldn't have accomplished our redemption. See, just casting some demons out of some people, healing the sick, all that was the kingdom, but it wouldn't have accomplished our salvation. The cross accomplished our full and total salvation. And the cross was painful. So, Jesus makes this choice to step out of expected comforts and into the place of suffering that is required by love. And so, he's just telling this man, look, if you want to be with me, this is what it's like. This is where I'm going. I'm headed towards the cross. Secondly, he calls us beyond expected customs. This might seem like one of the harshest things that Jesus says in all of the Gospels. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I just want to explain some cultural things here. You know, the way we treat death in our society is that when someone dies, there's normally a few days between their passing and the time that they actually go into the ground, right? And we do some things in between. Well, in Jesus' days, particularly in the Jewish culture, it just wasn't that way. Number one, because for religious reasons, the Jewish people did not want to be around dead bodies because it made them ceremonially unclean. Right? So they didn't want days of being around a dead body. And secondly, because only the wealthiest in society could afford to preserve bodies. Right, Most average people and the poor, they couldn't do what was necessary to preserve a dead body. Right? So they needed to get into the ground. So what was normal for the Jewish people was that someone would die and like immediately they would start mourning. And that same day, if possible, they would take them and bury them. Right? So it was... That quick, okay? So when you see this conversation that this disciple is having with Jesus, it's unlikely that his father has died, and during the few days between the death and the funeral, he comes to have this conversation with Jesus, right? There wasn't time for those kinds of conversations. So what is he saying? Well, most scholars think that either one of two things are happening here, and they both have to do with cultural customs. The first is that it's possible that this man was waiting for his father to actually die so that he could fulfill his responsibilities as a son to his father. Now, this was very important in Jewish culture, partly because the scriptures, right, in the, in the Ten Commandments, in the Old Testament law, it said, the first commandment, right, honor your father and your mother. So Jewish culture was very inclined to honor fathers and mothers, to honor the generation that came before. And out of that came all of these cultural customs. One of them was this. It wasn't in the Bible. It was just a cultural custom that people needed to live in close proximity to their parents until they passed so that their kids could take care of their burial arrangements and then they would be free to move wherever it is that they wanted to move. So this man might be saying to Jesus, My father's not even dead yet. Let him finish out his life, and then I'll follow you. That could be one thing that's happening. Or this, another custom, another way they honored their father and their mother, was that particularly if they couldn't preserve the body, they'd put the body into the ground. I know this is kind of graphic, I'm sorry, but it would decompose in the ground. And then a year later, the son would come back and dig up the body and get the bones and arrange the bones in a respectful manner, I don't know what that was, and rebury it, all right? Just a cultural custom. It's not how we treat death, but it's how the ancient Jewish people treated death. So he might be saying, just my father passed, let me wait a year so I can go back and rebury. Either way, he is saying that he wants to fulfill these cultural customs. They're not scriptural commands. They're based on scriptural commands, but they're not scriptural commands. They're just cultural customs, and he's saying, let me fulfill those first." before I come and follow you. Now, every culture has these customs, right? Every society has customs about the way we treat death, the way we eat our food, the way we dress, the way we talk to each other, so on and so forth. Do you know this? American culture is, I believe, the culture, uh, the culture on the face of the earth right now that is most aversive, most put off by smell. We are the least smell-tolerant people on the earth, all right? I ministered in India like a year and a half ago. They are not that way, all right? And they're just not, you know? CVS doesn't sell as much deodorant in India, I don't think, all right? It's just a different tolerance to smell, and that's not a scriptural command, right? The scripture doesn't tell us what our appropriate smell level should be. We might wish that it did sometimes for some people. But, but listen, it's, it's not that. It's just a custom, right? And we have different ones. Now, at their best, those customs are based and come out of truth. Um, for the Jewish people here, what this guy probably wants to do with his father, it's based on something good. Honor your father and your mother. It's reflective of something that's true, that's good. At their worst, cultural customs are opposed to truth, right? And every culture has customs that are good and reflect truth and has customs that are bad and don't reflect truth very well at all. That's true of every single culture. But here's the thing. Jesus has the right to call us beyond the boundaries of custom, good or bad, whenever he wants to, right? Because it's not, customs aren't God-made, they're man-made. And at any time, he can pull us beyond that. It's not that Jesus is anti-custom. It's just that he's pro-love, right? And nothing is going to stand between him and the cross, even good customs. So he tells this guy, look, you, you can follow me, but you need to do it right now. Like, time is of the essence. You need to drop everything and come after me. And you're not being disobedient to Scripture, you know, being obedient to Jesus, all right? So he calls him to that. It's good for us to be aware of and to acknowledge the cultural customs that we have and just a practical piece of advice. The best thing that you can do personally or for your kids or grandkids to make them aware of cultural customs because we're often blind to it is to put them around other cultures, right? People who are different, richer, poor, different socioeconomic statuses, different races, whatever, the best thing that we can do is be around people who are different than us because sometimes that's the first time we notice that the way we're living isn't just scriptural, some of it is just custom, right? And it surfaces that and it lets us examine it. Now, this is a hard call that Jesus makes, right? To go beyond comforts and to go beyond customs. As a matter of fact, it's very hard for Americans because... Our customs, which sometimes we refer to as the American Dream, right? It's stand- and the American Dream is different for different groups of people in the United States. But whatever it is, for you culturally or socioeconomically, the American Dream is what success looks like in our culture, right? But our customs, the American Dream, is very informed in the United States by our comforts, right? Right? The more comforts you have, the more you achieve the custom, right, the American dream. That's just how it works for us. And then here comes Jesus asking us to go beyond both of these things to something different. And what is it? Well, here's what he calls us to, an unexpected cross. Let me remind you, we already saw this in Mark chapter 8. Uh, when I preached on this passage, I said that the call of Jesus was to do, um, was to die, do like, and deny. But he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, when I preached on this a few weeks ago, here's something I didn't get to say. Why does Jesus, in this passage, talk about a cross in particular? Why didn't Jesus just say to the disciples, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die for me? Why was he that specific? You know, to say the cross. So we almost glaze over it because we hear the cross, we sing about the cross, we wear the cross, you know, all those kinds of things. We don't even notice it. But think about a minute how this would have hit the disciples' ears. Listen, somebody will die in glory for a good cause, right? If someone is persuasive enough, they can convince a whole room of people to die in glory for a good cause, right? Right? To be like the characters we see in movies, who even if they die in the battle, they died in glory, right? They died getting the victory. You know, they died looking awesome with that sword in their hands, right? You can convince people to die for something if that's what it looks like. And as a matter of fact, I think some of the disciples had already signed up for that. They were fine with the thought of dying in glory for Jesus. Now, Peter, he chickened out, but he even said this to Jesus on the night of his betrayal. I will do anything for you, right? It was like this, where's the cameras, you know? I'm ready to be the star in this movie. I'm going to die in glory. That is not a cross. So when the disciples heard the word cross, they would have thought of something very particular, And it was was a way of execution devised by the Roman Empire to not only kill people. They didn't need to create it just to kill people. People already knew how to kill people, right? They created it to kill people in the most humiliating way possible. They created it so that on your way out, you didn't die in glory at all. You died naked, ashamed, mocked. You died as a slave. You died as the worst of criminals. You died as a nobody. So when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross, what he's saying is, welcome to the nobody club. Because you're going to die, and you're going to die like a nobody. You're going to die humiliated. You're going to allow your dignity, even to come into service of this cause. That's a much harder call, isn't it? It's why the disciples never responded to stuff like this. You know, they just whispered among themselves about who was going to be the greatest, you know? Now, that's kind of heavy. Feel it in the room. All right? Here's the thing. This is good news. And I'm going to tell you why. See, most of the time, I think that many, many Christians don't want to respond to Jesus in a disciple-lord relationship. I think oftentimes we want to respond to him in a fan-celebrity relationship or in a shopper-salesperson relationship. I'm going to explain what I mean. Our culture is celebrity-obsessed, right? There's always someone, somewhere to be excited about, to go to their concerts, to dress like them, to hang up posters, you know, to do all of this stuff. And if anyone is worthy of all that, it's Jesus, right? But here's the thing. Like, when I'm a fan of somebody, it might look like I'm devoted to them, but for real, I do not want them telling me what to do with my life. See, I'm not their fan because I want them to be in charge of me. I'm actually their fan For me. I'm actually their fan because of the rush, the emotional rush I get. And as a matter of fact, when that celebrity or, you know, sports player or whoever, politician, can't provide that for me anymore, I will gladly move on to the next person. It won't be hard for me to do, right? Because there's no commitment in a fan-celebrity relationship. You know, there just isn't. And from a lot of American Christianity, this is how we relate to Jesus, Like, fans relate to a celebrity. Like, yeah, I'm with Jesus. I'm going to sing about Jesus. I'm going to go. We love the rush, right? The feeling. I'm going to wear the Jesus t-shirt, right? I'm going to do the Jesus things. But if Jesus starts acting like a Lord, which he is, then it starts to get uncomfortable, right? Or we relate to Jesus in this shopper-salesperson relationship. So when I go into the store, I love stores that have good service, especially hardware stores because I'm not very handy, right? So like Lowe's is like an abyss to me. It's like I go in there, I don't know where anything is, I can't find any help, I, I swear I'm the only person in the store, like there's no employees there, right? I'm wandering around for like three hours. But Alums here in Albuquerque, I love Alums. I go in there, there's five people waiting to serve on me, you know? Five people who are like, what do you need? They take me, right. I'm in and out of Alums so fast. They take me, that store looks so confusing to me, but they take me right to where I need to go. They give me what I need. They put it in a bag. As I'm checking out, they're giving me instructions on how to use it, and then I'm out the door, right? I love Alums. I love the employees. That's my kind of store, right? But I don't want that salesperson to start telling me how to live my life, Right? I'm there because I want to get something from them. And they make me happy when they give me what they got, right? That's how the relationship works. And for many American Christians, this is how we relate to Jesus. And listen, this one's hard because guess what? Jesus loves to give us stuff. He does. Don't doubt that. He's a great giver, He's the best giver. He loves to serve. He loves to give. We see that in Jesus. He loves, he gives healing to people who don't even thank him. That's what he's like. He's amazingly generous. But we stop the relationship at the place where he starts acting like a lord again, right? It's like, no, I want your stuff. I don't want you to tell me how to live. Now, this is a problem because it actually keeps us from good news. Here's, Here's why. Listen, when I relate to Jesus like a fan relates to a celebrity, that relationship is all about, you know, for the celebrity, that relationship is all about what I can give them. I spend money on their stuff. I spend money on their concerts. I spend, you know, whatever. But listen, very few celebrities actually want relationships with all their fans, right? Most of the time, think about celebrities are trying to hide from their fans, Right? Most of the time. So that relationship is really about what I can give to the celebrity, but it's not a real relationship. In the shopper and salesperson relationship, it's about what the salesperson can give me. Right? And so the relationship is good as long as I gets it. Both of those are about getting and giving stuff. Guess what? Jesus does not just want your stuff, Church. You know what he wants? He wants you. He wants you. He says something that no celebrity in the right mind ever says, follow me. Follow me. You, come be with me. Come walk with me. Yeah, you're a little annoying. You're a little messed up, a lot messed up, but come follow me. See... See, Jesus wants so much more than just this transactional relationship where we give him stuff and he gives us stuff. What he wants is to be with us. He died on the cross to be with us, not just to give and get stuff. Isn't that amazing? That's our Jesus. Now, that's good news because this morning, that should speak to you of your value. That should speak to you of your dignity where it counts with the person who counts the most, right? That should allow a security to rise up within you that is so deep and real and lasting that nothing can shake it even if people or circumstances try to take it away. He wants to be with you. Listen, he wants to be with you on your bad days. He wants to be with you on your good days. He wants to be with you in your sin and when you're living righteously. Do you believe that? He wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to walk with you. And he wants you to walk with him. Now, here's the thing, though. Jesus is going somewhere. Jesus is always moving. There's a direction to his walking. And that's what he's saying here. He's he's not just trying to be mean. You know, like, oh, forget about your customs. Forget about your comfort. He's saying, if you want to be with me, that's great. But here's where I'm going. All right? So that's good news because he loves us all right? Secondly, customs and comforts, while they're not inherently wrong, they do have a tendency to confine and define us, right? To confine and define us. Comfort builds an insulating barrier around my life. Just take temperature. You know, if my preferred temperature is 76, I might be able to take down 74. I don't know. We don't have air conditioning in our house right now, Very spiritual at the home, Anyway, so so listen, 76, you know, then 77, 70. Eventually, I'm going, as the temperature goes up, I'm going to hit that barrier, right? I'm going to hit that barrier of my comfort. And see, at its worst, comfort keeps us from loving people. Comfort keeps us from loving God because we, we have trouble breaking through that, all right? Um, customs have a tendency to define and confine us. You know, we tend to put our identity, we connect our identity to these cultural customs. And here's what happens. When we allow comfort and custom to define and confine us, we really become very small people living in a very big kingdom, church, really. We become very, very confined, small-minded, small-hearted people. You know, when we don't let Jesus call us beyond comfort and custom, call us out into a different place. You know, there seriously, if we live within the boundaries of our comfort and custom for a whole life, our whole life will pass us by and we will not see things that God wanted us to see. We will not see his glory revealed in ways that he wanted to reveal his glory because we didn't answer the call to go beyond, Right? and i don't want to live that kind of life cuz quite frankly it's small it's empty and it's boring quite frankly it's a boring life church you're you're better than that seriously all of you are don't live a boring life no so you checked off everything the culture accepted of you who gives a rip anybody can do that you you checked off everything that your neighbors felt like you needed to live up to who cares Listen, I know in your hearts, I know, I see it in your eyes, you want to live for something greater. You want to live for something greater. And then this starts to happen. Oh, oh I got to say this. This is the good news of the cross. If God does, if, the, if you could play, if God does his best work, if God does his absolute best work at the cross, at the place of utter humiliation, forsakenness, humiliation, shame, if that's where God does his best work, listen, that's good news for every single one of us in this room. Because you know what it means? It means that with Jesus, listen, church, this is so good. With Jesus, there's room for the shameful. Isn't that good? With Jesus, there's room for people with humiliated lives. I love that. With Jesus, there's room for the embarrassing basket cases. Love that. Love it. I love it. I love it. With Jesus, there's room for the people who can't even look someone in the eye for shame. But there's room for those people with Jesus. Isn't he so great? See, if God accomplishes his best work at the cross, it means that this thing we're a part of, church, is not just for the people who are put together. It's not just for the people who, you know, can play the cultural game, who are beautiful enough to be on a commercial. There was nothing lovely about him, Isaiah says. nothing that we should be attracted to him. Wow. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Listen, if that's our Savior, then it means there's room for everybody there. Nobody gets excluded if that's our Jesus. So that's good news. You'd stand to your feet. Sometimes when I preach, I'll just say this as I close, I have two dominant feelings often when I'm preaching. The first is that it's like um, a labor room, which I was just in one of those. It's intense, but it works, right? And, you know, my role in the labor room obviously wasn't to deliver the baby, but it was to encourage my wife. And as her pain increased and as she got louder, I did too because I wanted her to hear me, right? It's like, I'm here. I'm here. You know, I'm here with you. I wanted her to know that, you know, that I was with her. But then, isn't it amazing, the the tone, the feeling of the labor room changes immediately as soon as the baby's born. And it goes from this, like, intense, like, this thing's coming out, you know, to just blessing, right? And so sometimes, and and there, you know, Isla's laying on my wife, and we just start blessing her right away. Oh, honey, you're so beautiful. Look at you, you know? So, listen, sometimes for me, preaching feels... Like the former, like you gotta preach through to get something out. And sometimes it just feels like I'm gonna bless something that's already there. And I'm actually over here today. And this is just my read in my spirit. It's because I think even as I preach, some of you have already had dreams that were birthed in you that take you beyond the expected comforts and the expected customs that this world has to offer. I think for some of you, those dreams are already birthed. It's like this morning as I was preaching, like I didn't have to convince you that Jesus would call you to do something out of the ordinary because you've already heard his voice. It's just the feeling I have. So here's what I want to do if that is already coming out of you, then I just want to bless it. Because the attitude, the feeling, the atmosphere of the labor room has already changed. See, Cresma, I do believe, if I can be so bold, that God has called us to be a church that is boundary-breaking when it comes to comfort and custom. I believe that. I believe that He's called us to hear his voice out there beyond what society tells us is normal, beyond what people tell us is normal. I just, I want to commit to you as as one of your leaders that if you come to me and share with me a crazy thing that God is birthing in you, I want to bless it. I want to bless it right away. Because I'd rather us having, I'd rather us be a church that's trying crazy things and, and even failing sometimes. I'd rather be that any day than a church that's not willing to move beyond comfort and custom. Are you with me in that church? Are you with me? That's where I want to be. So I just want to bless that. If that's you, if if the dreams of God have begun to birth in you, it's You may not even have language for it yet. You may just be seeing a little bit. God often works that way. He'll only show you a little bit. But if that's you, could you just extend your hands? I just want to pray over you. God, I bless. Oh, yes, Lord. I bless what has been birthed in the womb of faith. In Jesus' name. We welcome the birth. We welcome these dreams. I just feel a a moment here. (laughs) Lord, we just welcome that. And in the tenderness of this moment, we bless what you're doing, God. Lord, just like parents come to wrap around an infant and protect right away, Lord, we just use our spiritual authority that's been given to us by Jesus to declare protection over these new dreams, over these hopes. Lord, they're young. They're fragile. Lord, maybe there's a story of pain behind it, but God, we just stand around it as a church community. And we say, Lord, would you protect and would you guide? So Jesus... We bless this and we ask that it would grow to maturity. We ask that every step of the way, what you're doing in these dreams that have already come, Lord, in the places in this room where people have already done the unexpected, where they've already stepped past comfort, where they've already stepped past custom, Lord, we pray that you would protect in those places. In Jesus' name. Lord, protect from the judgments of people. Lord, they don't understand. Jesus, you said that on the cross. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Lord, when we choose a cross instead of comfort and custom, sometimes even our closest uh, friends, our closest family do not get it. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, to see only you and not their stares and their judgment, just their misunderstanding. As a matter of fact, we just bless them in Jesus' name. Whoever they are, we just bless them. Lord, we don't have any ill will against them. We just bless them because they don't know what they're doing. And then, Lord, protect us from the enemy who always wants to throw our sin in our face, who wants to tell us that it's impossible, who wants to make us sick, who wants to make us ashamed, Lord, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name. So, Lord, let these new dreams come forward. Just feel a weightiness in the room. There's new dreams here. Let those come forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we just give God praise today? We bless you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.